0: Hi, I'm Sergio, and I'm Alex, and this is the IPHO podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry.
1: We have two goals to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth.
0: What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists? And how can I stand out from other candidates?
1: How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients?
0: What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry and what are companies doing about it?
1: So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And
0: remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Hey, welcome to a very special episode of the IPHO podcast, where we're taking you inside the C-suite. Tonight, we're very fortunate to be joined by Sean Leland. Sean is the founder and CEO of Elevation Oncology. He brings over a decade of experience in medical affairs and business development for the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, with a focus on building collaborations to realize the full potential of targeted and personalized therapeutics. Sean has been involved in global transactions, totaling more than $450 million in upfront payments and milestone payments at Eli Lilly, Ariad, Argos, Ferristem. Um, Sean has also served as an expert strategic consultant for Catenian, providing guidance on portfolio management. Bantamab, Elevation's lead candidate, is a monoclonal antibody that binds to HER3, which is traditionally activated through binding of its primary ligand, Regulin one or NRG1, Um, These NRG1 fusions have been identified in a variety of solid tumors, and it's currently being evaluated in the Phase II Crestone study, which had data reported at ASCO 2022. Sean, thank you so much for doing this.
2: Sounds good. Serge, thanks for the welcome, and uh, thanks for the intro
0: on the podcast. Okay, um, we're going to chat about elevation in a moment, but first, let's rewind back to the very beginning, which is where many of our listeners are right now. What led you to pursue a pharmacy degree, and when did you know that you wanted a career in the pharmaceutical industry?
2: Yeah, so my passion and desire to go into pharmacy you know, really stems from both of my parents being in healthcare. My mom is a labor and delivery nurse, and then my, my dad was actually a occupational health and safety nurse for the New York Army National Guard. So I've always had kind of this background passion for healthcare. You know, I knew I I didn't want to spend a, a decade plus in medical school and residency and, and fellowship. Um, so I felt like, you know, a path down pharmacy and, and being a PharmD was a good in between. So that was kind of the path and kind of like what drew me to pharmacy. I went straight out of high school into a six year PharmD program at Albany College of Pharmacy. Tremendous experience, great education, you know, really deep clinical knowledge that I built during my time in pharmacy school. You know, toward the latter part of pharmacy school, And really all throughout kind of my career in pharmacy school, you know, I had this passion for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, critical care. A lot of that was really driven by, you know, some of the challenges I saw my dad go through, you know, battling diabetes, you know, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, multiple amputations, you know, it was a challenging thing to watch. And I, it was something I wanted to do and wanted to be able to help people, that were suffering from diabetes and cardiovascular disease and critical care. So that was kind of my passion. Um, you know, My first D clerkship rotation uh, was supposed to be with the cardiovascular disease doc in Syracuse, New York. Um, I was really excited for that rotation, kind of given my, my passion for the field. About two weeks before that rotation, I got a call from that cardiovascular disease doctor that was I was supposed to do the rotation with and uh, he's like, I've got some bad news for you. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Um, he's like, I just changed practices. I'm like, okay, so where are we going? And uh, he's like, uh, we are not going anywhere. He's like, you got to go talk to the clerkship director and figure out where you're going now for your first rotation in two weeks. I'm like, okay, perfect. Sounds good. So I went and talked to the clerkship director, you know, typical excuse two weeks before you're uh, about to start a rotation of what those options are community pharmacy, inpatient pharmacy in the basement of the hospital. Um, and then she threw out a, an intriguing option, which was, you know, doing inpatient acute leukemia, um, at Roswell Park Cancer Institute. And I'm like, sounds interesting, but like, I hated oncology going through pharmacy school, you know, was not something that like intrigued me, but I'm like, I'd rather do a, a clinical rotation than doing community pharmacy or like inpatient hospital. So I went to Roswell Park. And that's really where I fell in love with, you know, the field of oncology. Uh, it was very different than anything we learned in pharmacy school. It wasn't just treating patients with chemotherapy and it wasn't just about supportive care. It was, you know, what what is the genomic makeup of this patient? It was, you know, do they qualify for a clinical trial? It was, you know, are we going to transplant this patient or not? So it was a, it was a whole side of oncology that I never really knew or never really saw in, in pharmacy school. And I'm like, this is how like research is done. This is how patients are treated in, in clinical practice. It's not always about, you know, getting a, a standard of care therapy. It's, you know, how does the standard of care evolve over time? And, you know, how can we, you know, get patients on the clinical trials, transplant them and give them the best opportunity for success, you know, especially when these patients were, were heavily pretreated. I actually had the next rotation block off and stayed for another six weeks at Roswell Park. I did bench research with the antimicrobial doc. I did some chart research with the colorectal cancer doc there. And then the next rotation I had after that was with Pfizer uh, with the medical science liaison. That's really kind of like where I found my passion and interest for, for industry. I'd really always been intrigued by the clinical side of seeing things and the the science behind things and the biology and those types of things. Um, but the medical science liaison role in industry, I felt like was a, a great mix of business and science, um, which was something I had a passion for. And, you know, it's really kind of what led me to my career
1: in industry. It really highlights the value of preparing for rotations and being able to adjust when everything doesn't work out. Because that happens. It, it happened to you, but it happens all the time. And I'm sure that it happened to a ton of people during COVID, even more than what happened to us prior to COVID. Let's continue on with your career here. We got through rotations, your passion for oncology and industry. Let's talk about fellowship. You did a one-year fellowship. Perhaps, I, I know that a lot are moving towards a two-year. Do you have any, maybe you could share some thoughts on that one versus two-year based on your experience. Both of us are two did two-year fellowship programs. Yeah. So, I mean, I think
2: the the fellowship is key. I mean, I think I feel like a common question that always comes up is, you know, do you think you can get into industry with, without doing the fellowship program? And I mean, maybe, I, I mean, I thought like after everything I did on clerkship rotations that I was very well qualified to go straight into industry. But I mean, I can tell you it didn't, it didn't work out that way. I mean, I applied for medical science liaison positions had really good relationships with, you know, people I had interacted with at Roswell Park on the industry side. And I'm like, I can do this without the fellowship. I can get in. And it just, it never happened. Like people want to see that you have industry experience in order to get your foot in the door. And that's what I I really felt the fellowship was key to doing. I felt like the fellowship was key to getting your foot in the door, to get into industry. And without that, I think it's unbelievably challenging to do so. So for me, I mean, I, I think, I mean, you could probably flip a coin in terms of whether like one or two year fellowship program is is necessary. You know, my fellowship program at Bristol-Myers Squibb was a fantastic cross-functional experience um, in medical affairs where I got experience, um, you know, in clinical operations and with investigator-sponsored trials and what it took to set up a clinical trial and all that goes into the protocol design and development and implementation as well as kind of site selection and and getting the trial up and running. I then, you know, did a rotation in medical information where you just kind of like learn all the background around the products, um, you know, take calls in the call center and do all of those things. And then I also rotated out in the field with medical science liaisons and, you know, got an understanding of what it was like to interact with top tier key opinion leaders and go to medical meetings and be a part of that experience. So I felt like, the one-year fellowship, you know, there was a lot crammed into that, but I learned a ton and I got a ton of cross-functional experience that I felt was what kind of like anyone that had posted a medical affairs position that I had applied for after the fellowship. I mean, I had, I checked all the boxes at that point. So, I mean, you know, obviously a big shout out to the the BMS team and the oncology med affairs program that they set up um, because, you know, it definitely put me in that position you know to secure you know an industry job and and not just any industry job but you know top-tier industry job like in medical affairs positions across you know multiple different companies you know i mean i think in terms of the the one-year versus the two-year program you know perhaps if you're looking to get a deep dive experience in a certain functional area that's where i feel like the two-year program could be very valuable or if there's you know, a big project that you're coming in to work on, you know, like you came in and you were, you know, responsible for like a BLA filing or an NDA filing. And you got to see that all the way through. It's probably not going to be something you're going to see through in a year. So, you know, that's where I see, you know, people potentially advocating for a two-year program. But, you know, if you're just, if you're looking to get your foot in the door, you're looking to get that kind of one-year experience, and then you're looking to, you know, get into the, the field and industry, I think a one-year program is sufficient, but I can see also a lot of value in the two-year programs as well.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, my experience in and around the fellowship programs is that it has a lot to do with um, who the fellow is as well. There are some folks who come into a fellowship with um, a lot more industry experience. They've done internships and, you know, several rotations versus you know, there are folks that come into a fellowship program that have, you know, minimal industry experience, who have maybe strong clinical experience and who may benefit from a longer exposure, you know, in the industry. And, and even two year fellowship programs are probably, you know, functionally closer to one and a half year fellowships with, with folks who tend to complete a little bit early. Um, and so I don't know that there's a one size fits all answer.
1: Yeah. But that that actually, when you talk about a two year being about a one and a half, if you think about it from that that thought process, a one year is like a six to eight month then, right? Because you're preparing for interviews. So that's the other part of it. It, it really, I, I agree, it comes down to the individual and their and their background and what they're looking to do and what they bring beforehand and are able to kind of continue that momentum within that one year program.
0: So then you finished up the fellowship and you, you took a role at Eli Lilly. Um, and so how did things start out there? And my next question is going to be, it, it seems like you made a, a shift while you were at Lilly, you know, from medical into more, you know, business development or corporate strategy, and would just love to hear more about um, the decision-making behind that.
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of my story is is right time, right place. I mean, you heard about kind of, you know, the the passion that I have for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, critical care, and then all of a sudden I found myself in oncology and I, I thought I was gonna be a clinical pharmacist. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, working in industry now, um, you know, my, I feel like my career path in industry was, is is very similar. And, you know, there's a lot of parallels that that come back into play. Um, so you're spot on, Serge. I mean, I started, you know, as a medical science liaison in ecology at, at Eli Lilly. You know, I relocated from from Princeton to Denver. I found myself managing the, the largest territory for Eli Lilly. I had, you know, 15 different states in kind of the Midwest mountain region. You know, I, I, added up a lot of frequent flyer miles and, and was traveling somewhere. I was pretty much in a different state every week, you know, in the, in the pre-COVID era when when these things were, uh, were normal. So I ended up doing that role. I was primarily responsible for placing preclinical and clinical research collaborations. So I was essentially an extension of our internal, you know, medical and research team and, You know, I had a good understanding of gaps that they had, you know, different preclinical models that we didn't have in-house and clinical trials where we were looking for clinical trial sites. And I was responsible for being knowledgeable within my territory and brokering essentially those connections between, you know, both uh, researchers as well as investigators, predominantly at major academic centers and large community oncology practices. So I did that for about a year and a half, and I was at a oncology conference, I think it was actually the, the triple meeting and it was in, in Berlin. Um, and I found myself at a, a Lilly reception and I think I grabbed a drink and I was talking to a guy, had no idea who this guy was at the time, but he was the chief scientific officer for, for Lilly Oncology. And he's like, you know, he and I were just talking, he was asking what I had saw at the conference and, you know, what I had thought about like this target and like the competitive landscape. I'm like, why is this guy asking me all these questions? You know, and and at the end of that conversation, he's like, you know, a lot about oncology. He's like, I just had a spot open up in my group. He's like, I'm looking for someone to come in and do oncology search and evaluation, you know, scout assets for unlicensing companies for mergers and acquisitions. And I'm like, sounds really cool. I don't think i know anything about it and i'm i'm not sure like how or why you think i'm qualified for this but let's do it uh so i'm like i i'm, I'm happy to take a look at this so i ended up doing a, a temporary assignment with uh with this group in oncology search and evaluation um, what was supposed to be a six-month assignment turned into a, a three-month assignment and then john herman who was the the chief scientific officer at the time at Lilly. went and had a conversation with my manager and all of a sudden I was full-time in his group. So I I found myself working in oncology search and evaluation. I was reporting into the executive leadership team at Eli Lilly. So every other week um, we would have leadership team meetings. I led cross-functional due diligence teams, sometimes up to north of 50 people to assess different assets from licensing and companies for mergers and acquisitions. And it was a great cross-functional experience and it really allowed me to gain a robust understanding of what it takes, you know, what what a good drug looks like and and what it takes from both a business scientific and clinical perspective and the work that needs to be done to figure out if you're going to in-license an asset or go out and, and acquire a company. Um, so I did that role for, for about four years, I then, um, decided I had kind of had my fill of big pharma. I felt like I had learned a ton at Lilly, but I also saw that there was opportunities to do things in a more capital and like time efficient manner. So I decided to uh, take my career to biotech at that point. So I actually took, uh, you know, what what some may deem a step back in my career. So I actually went back to medical affairs. Um, I helped start up the medical affairs team at Ariad Pharmaceuticals. I quickly built a good relationship with the chief scientific officer there, Tim Claxon. He's like, you have BD knowledge too? Like we don't have a chief business officer. So I found myself kind of splitting time between medical affairs and doing some BD stuff. So I spent a year there. Um, and then I went on to Argos Therapeutics where I served as head of business development for four years. And then unfortunately our, our phase three trial was, was negative there, it was a binary event. So I, I stayed on for the last year and helped wind down that company spending probably about 20% of my time at Argos and I got their permission to consult during that period of time. So I did some consulting work through, through Catenion. So I was part of the due diligence team that led the licensing transaction for the Lutetium labeled PSMA program that was, was acquired by Endocyte and then sold to Novartis for, for $2 billion. And then I was also part of the team that led the due diligence uh, for Varisome Oncologies licensing transaction around Duvalisib um, that, that, that then led to the commercialization of Duvalisib. Um, and then I came on to head up business development for Varisome Oncology um, for two years uh, prior to coming across this really cool idea
1: uh, to form Elevation Oncology. Wow. Okay. Um, it, I, I'm absorbing all of this as we go here. It's pretty incredible. When, uh, something that I take away here, the theme, and I can picture the name of this episode, it's let's do it, right? You talked about already your your rotation that was supposed to be in cardiovascular care didn't work out, and you found what you you found something else that could be a let's do it. It was Roswell Park. I can't remember now if it was before the episode started or during the episode where you talked about your location uh, where you wanted to be up in the Northeast and ended up in Denver and said let's do it. Now you're talking to the CSO at a conference. Then you said, "I don't know anything about this about business development." You sure I'm the guy? Well, let's do it. That's I, I think that that really uh, kind of summarizes a lot of what I've heard so far about your career, at least early on and moving up. Um, but considering everything you've done, you talked about traveling every every week, traveling every month to a new state. Maybe it was every week to a new state, but uh, and now you're you're running a company. What's that like from a work-life balance perspective? How do you ensure that you can maintain your extracurriculars while you're still progressing an, an important asset through development and maintaining a business?
2: Yeah, so I mean, work-life balance, I mean, you could uh, probably ask any one of my employees at Elevation. I'm probably the biggest proponent of, of work-life balance and taking time off and making sure that you have the ability to to do those things. You know, I mean, I have a, a family, a, a wife and and three beautiful kids. You know, it's it's not easy to balance these things, but I actually feel like this is where, you know, starting a company and, you know, creating a virtual company, you know, during COVID was like actually one of the best things ever for work-life balance. You know, I, I joke and say, you know, like I, I, I did this kind of like work from home, stay at home thing, like way before it was cool, like way before COVID, right? I've always worked in Denver. I've always worked remotely for every company that I've worked for. I've never worked like in-house in an office. I've always kind of traveled every other week or so and like have been in kind of like a corporate office um, and have gone into the office. But, you know, it's just, I, I encourage every single one of my employees, like you should not be missing like your daughter's, you know, dance practice, or you shouldn't be missing your son's baseball game. Like because of something that's work related, take time, like, you know, do some extra work later in the evening or like get up early and get your work done there. Like don't miss your daughter's like dance recital. Don't miss your son's baseball practice. Go to those things. Those are a priority. You know, work is always going to be there. It's not going anywhere. You know, it's really important to spend time with, you know, family and friends. You know, it's also really important to like refresh yourself. I feel like I mean, there are plenty of times where I'm like, God, I am exhausted, you know, where, you know, you just kind of persevere and you you push through, but it's also really important to take time off and refresh yourself. And it's something I try to do, you know, at least like once or twice every like couple months, I think it's really important to do these things. I think if you work yourself to the bone and you're just not fresh, you're not at the top of your game, you're not thinking clearly. So, I mean, I think it's really, really important to just make time for this and like you just have to do it, right? It's always easy to say like, oh, I got to get this done or like just need a couple more hours on this. But it's really important to take the time. You don't get those hours and days back
0: where you miss these things. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, for somebody who espouses, um, you know, I think a really contemporary and progressive, you know, philosophy on work-life balance, particularly at a smaller company that's that's starting up, when do you feel like you developed those healthy work life habits? Like you feel like thinking back to your fellowship program that you had that same philosophy, because I, I try to counsel, you know, everybody who's coming into our fellowship program, that it's important to establish healthy work life habits early in your career because you tend to, you know, continue with those behaviors over the course of your career and that you can burn out if you don't, you know, get those habits, right? So do you feel like you had mastered it early or did it take, you know, time through your career until you, you know, you had that perspective?
2: Yeah, I feel like it, like in my career, it's waxed, waxed and waned. I feel like, you know, where I am, especially like with, with elevation and, and running a company, I just feel like it's even more important. So like, that's where I feel like I've, I've really like, quote unquote, mastered this. You know, I think there are times earlier in my career where I feel like I did a really good job. There's other times where I feel like I did a really, really bad job of this.
0: Yeah. And I mean, in your role now, leading an organization, it's not just your own work-life balance. It's the the work-life balance of, of your employees. And you've also got to consider, you know, other elements of, you know, a, an HR program, including things like uh, ensuring and maintaining that you've got a diverse and inclusive workforce. Yep. Um, and so, you know, as part of your learning you know, stepping into the role of, of CEO, um, what have you learned about um, those efforts? And, you know, what steps have you taken at, at Elevation to ensure that you've got a diverse and inclusive workforce?
2: Yeah, I think the, you know, diversity and inclusion piece is is extremely important, right? Um, it's not something that, you know, is, is taken lightly. And I actually, am extremely proud of, you know, what we've done from that perspective at Elevation, you know, more than, you know, 50% of our workforce is, is actually female, you know, and I think that's something that's not terribly common in this industry or across multiple companies, but it's it's something that I'm extremely proud of in terms of what we've been able to, to build at Elevation. You know, I think, you know, obviously certain states are, you know, much more ahead in comparison to others, I feel like on diversity and inclusion, you know, requirements in particular, I feel like you know, California is very adamant about this. I mean, we've seen, you know, NASDAQ as we, you know, transition from a private company to a public company, you know, it's it's not something that I feel like, you know, a lot of CEOs and a lot of boards think about, but then it's like all of a sudden NASDAQ is telling you like within like a year or two years, listen, you need to have at least like one diverse board member. And then after that, you know, a year after that, you need to have at least two. So I mean, I think it's something that is extremely important it's something we take you know very seriously at, at elevation we actually even had just a diversity inclusion seminar across the company
1: today so it's something that's I feel like front and center for for every organization now since we're we're on the topic of elevation um, you have a phase two asset under development uh, what is the what does the next three to five years look like for you and your company and you know, as you think about your experience as a D student and fellow, how could potentially uh, these these types of individuals, people rising in their career, get involved with uh, an organization like yours?
2: Yeah, I, I feel like it's a lot of persistence and, and determination. Um, you know, the next three to five years are going to be extremely busy for us at Elevation, you know so not only do we have you know sarabantumab in a phase two study with registrational intent you know obviously very cutting edge trial you know enrolling solid tumors with you know NRG1 gene fusion so we select every patient you know deliver a you know precision oncology agent and, and sarabantumab to them and you know as as Serge mentioned in the intro um, our initial clinical data set shows that you can see very deep and durable responses you know, when you deliver a precise medicine like Cerebantamab to patients with NRG1 gene fusion. So, you know, we're looking to build an industry-leading precision oncology at at elevation. So in addition to the phase two Crestone study with Cerebantamab, we also closed a licensing transaction at the end of July where we in-licensed a Clodin 18.2 antibody drug conjugate from CSPC Pharmaceuticals in China. When we acquired that license for, for ex China rights, you know, the phase one dose escalation dose expansion was ongoing in China at the time. So we were very fortunate to see the safety and efficacy data that gave us confidence that this could be a potential best in class and first in class antibody drug conjugate against this target. And um, what's a, a very competitive landscape. We plan to initiate phase one development in the U S and other countries in our territory in 2023 with that asset. So that's really kind of our second clinical stage asset. In addition to that, we also have a strategic collaboration with Keras Life Sciences. So Keras is a next generation sequencing company. Um, one of the industry leaders in genomic sequencing, they do a uh, whole transcriptome, whole exome sequencing. So they sequence all 22,000 genes in your genome. So the partnership we put in place with them Uh, Is focused on target identification and drug discovery associated with oncogenic fusion and driver mutation targets. You know, the hypothesis there was, you know, most other genomic sequencing companies have their favorite kind of three to 600 gene panel, and they're only collecting data analytics on those three to 600 genes. I'm like, if Keras is sequencing all 22,000 genes, maybe they know about some targets that others don't know about. So we're now a year and a half into that collaboration. So we've identified some really cool targets associated with that and are working around, uh, working on target validation around those targets. So that collaboration will really kind of fuel our pipeline going forward. And then we'll continue to be opportunistic on the
0: business development front as well. Sounds like you're really pushing the, the leading edge of science with the work that you guys are doing there, which is exciting and exhilarating. Um, For those folks who are earlier in their careers, you know, students and fellows, um, you know, again, looking back to earlier in your career, if you had, you know, some final bits of advice for them, if they were interested in pursuing, you know, a path like yours, not everybody will become a CEO, but um, certainly the positions that you've had and, you know, corporate business development and licensing, you know, for folks who are interested in, in pursuing that sort of career path, what advice would you have for them?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's always looking for like the magic answer of like, if I do X and Y and Z and I do them in that order, like I'll be able to get to the same point. Right. You know, for me, it's a, uh, it was a lot of hard work and, and persistence. And I mean, I feel like they emphasize these types of things in, in the fellowship. I mean, I really didn't even hear a whole lot about networking, like through pharmacy school, maybe that's changed, changed now but it was really during the fellowship where people were like, you really need to like network and like go and talk to other people and like learn about these things. So that was kind of like where I learned about networking and um, it's something I have done kind of like throughout my entire career. Obviously it's something that got a bit harder, you know, during COVID, but I mean, I was fortunate enough that I had built a really solid network of, of people at that point, you know, my ability to form Elevation um, and be successful here is is really heavily driven by that network, right? You know, when I formed the company, I mean, the first call I made was to a, a woman at the current company I had, was working at at the time, who was a scientific advisory board member. And I said, I came across this really cool idea. Like, what do you think about this? And she's like, it should work. She's like, you just got to figure out how you're going to find the patients because they're really rare you know those types of relationships the ability to just pick up the phone and call someone who's like a world-renowned industry leader like you can't replace those types of relationships and even um when i formed elevation i'm like yeah i like obviously you got to go out and talk to investors you got to pitch to them but it's like who am i going to go out and talk to why am i going to talk to them how am i going to get in touch with these people you know i fortunately had a a friend that i did the fellowship with enoch karayuki He was well-connected, you know, on the financing side, had a lot of great relationships there. You know, so he and I brainstormed and said, you know, who who are the folks that that have invested in Precision Oncology lately? You know, who are their investors in LOXO? Who are the investors in Ignita? And that really kind of streamlined that search. And, you know, he made introductions and that allowed me to get my foot in the door. Without those types of connections, like Elevation would not be what it is today you know, as I built out, you know, a management team at Elevation, um, as we built out our board of directors, like, you know, this is where networking is invaluable. And no one person can ever sit in this role and be like, yeah, I know everything about this. I feel very fortunate enough to be a first-time entrepreneur, you know, first-time CEO, um, you know, at at my age very early on in, in my career. But I I will be the first person to tell you, I don't know everything. And this is like a constant learning experience. I constantly make mistakes daily um, and hear about them. They are learning experiences. You need to learn from your mistakes and, you know, you try not to make them again, but even sometimes that happens. But, you know, I think surrounding myself with people, I knew where the gaps were. Like I knew where I was really strong And, you know, why I was able to form the company and why I was able to bring it to where it was. But a big part of, you know, the success is like knowing where your gaps are and being able to fill those with those that are a part of your network and then leveraging other people's networks
0: as you build out a team. Such amazing and actionable feedback for students and fellows and honestly, for anybody in their career who's looking to take that next step and and better plan for their own career development. So, you know, thank you for sharing that perspective and it's been such an honor having you on the show. It's it's amazing watching your career and I think, you know, you can set an aspirational example for for all pharmacists about what you can achieve in this industry, you know, through persistence and, you know, good luck and being at the right place at the right time and leaning on your network where where appropriate and so Thanks again on behalf of all of our listeners for doing this. We look forward to having you back on the show soon so that we can hear all about the great things that Elevation's doing and and talk to you some more. So thanks again for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, Serge. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure.